Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Romeo, the love I bear thee can afford no better term than this. Thou art a villain. Tybalt, the reason that I have to love thee does much excuse the appertaining rage to such a greeting. Villain? Am I not? Therefore, farewell. I see thou knowest not. <laughs> Boy! This shall not excuse the injuries thou hast done me. Therefore, turn and draw! I do protest I never injured thee. But love thee better than thou canst devise, till thou shalt know the reason of my love. And so, good captain, which name I tender as dearly as mine own. <laughs> Be satisfied. Hello and welcome to The Plays The Thing. You have joined us for Act 3 of Romeo and Juliet. I am Tim McIntosh. And I'm Heidi White. I'm Sarah Jane Bentley. And we're going to throw you right into the mix with some violence. The violence that turns <laughs> the play between Romeo and Tybalt. Yeah, there's um, been just too much love. Too there's much. There's been too much love. Stuff. It's been so soft. We knew that disaster had to happen, and it happens in Act Three, Where's Scene the One, the pivot of the play. Um, before we get to that, though, we we timed the recording of these podcasts on Romeo and Juliet to kind of match up with a PBS special in the United States that's going to premiere on April 23rd. So there's an original film for television that's going to be produced by the National Theater, great performances. And it's apparently, I, nobody has seen it yet. I haven't seen it yet. I've only seen the preview. A stylized film of Romeo and Juliet. And it stars Josh O'Connor. So if any of you have been paying attention to The Crown, he plays the kind of the adolescent Prince Charles. He's Romeo. Josh O'Connor is Romeo. And Jesse Buckley, who I don't know, is playing Juliet. Do either of you know Jesse Buckley? Sarah no. Jane? She's British, no? 
they're playing Romeo and Juliet. Check your local listings on PBS. I've always wanted to say, check your local listings. And now is an opportunity. Today check your local day. listings for uh, Romeo and Juliet on April 23rd on PBS. I think I, my bet is it's going to be really good. If not, it'll be really interesting. Because whenever something says stylized and it's done by the National Theater, I, those are two phrases that just to me say, this is going to be worth a look. Um, and I thank you two for the question and answer, the traditional question and answer podcast that we do after act five. I would love for us to have seen the production so that we can incorporate some of our thoughts on that production um, for the audience, for the Q&A session. Okay. When we last left Romeo and Juliet, they had been secretly married by Friar Lawrence. Things are going well. We know that rough water is ahead, but things are going well. They've fallen in love in act two. Romeo climbs the balcony. Juliet is looking for him. He, you know, she discovers him, but she's beforehand, you know, she's kind of ruminating like, why do you have to be from the family you're from? And there's this ontological question that comes up, you know, are you... Are you, can you be free from your family? Are you, are you, you, can you just be an individual who is in love with me? The question of ontology is going to come up again in act three, but really the top of act three, it's all about bloodshed. Tybalt and his crew meet Romeo's crew in the street and uh, Mercutio and Tybalt argue and Sarah Jane do you mind just kind of like breaking the bad news to us? What happens in act three, scene one? Well, you could be mistaken for thinking it's a tragedy at this point because bodies start to pile up on the stage. So, yeah. um, Mercutio is slain under Benvolio's arm. Benvolio intervenes to try and stop the fight in the hot day between Tybalt, the king of cats, King of the Pricks, if we translate it from the Italian. Um, oh, really? So it's really? a rude insult from the word cazzo in Italian. And um, it's quite literal as well, isn't it? Because they're fighting with rapiers. And I think these, this would have been a really exciting visual scene. Yeah. And so after, after the death of Mercutio, Romeo returns to the scene and takes revenge and... The scene ends with bodies piling up on the stage. Tybalt is slain. And so that is a, quite a dramatic day in Romeo's life. He's, he's just got married. At first, though, at first, Sarah Jane, Romeo doesn't want to fight Tybalt. Why not? I think he's... I'm interested to hear what Heidi has to say about this, but I think he's learned from Juliet. That when he speaks in Act 3, Scene 1, and um, says to, to Tybalt that he loves him, he seems to be speaking with a new kind of maturity. Mm. Uh, the reason that I have to love thee doth much excuse the appertaining rage to such a greeting. Villain am I none, therefore farewell. The love I bear thee is better than thou canst devise. He's transformed by the power of Juliet's love and is now able even to love his enemy, which is something we, we could never mm. have expected of him, I think, earlier when he was so confused with Rosaline. So can I, I've got a question for both of you. Is his love for his enemy 
because his enemy is related to Juliet? Or do you think there's something that has happened inside of Romeo that actually transcends that? Does he actually, could he actually love Tybalt if Tybalt was of another family unrelated to Juliet? I think it's a good question, Tim. And I, I agree with Sarah Jane. And I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this too, Tim. I I think that his refusal to fight Tybalt here is is one of the um, sources of pathos for the rest of what unfolds in this play. I think it's really important because I agree with Sarah Jane. I think that this is a sign of what love ought to do in a human soul, right? It ought to drive, uh, draw a soul beyond itself into being able to love even beyond the beloved object, right? Mm -hmm. This is, it makes uh, his love for Julia is so transcendent that it gives him the ability to then love somebody other than Juliet, right? This is what love ought to do for us, ought to transform us, to make us better, to harmonize us. And, and that's what his love, that's what love would have and could have done for Romeo if it wasn't for this feud, right? If it wasn't for the fact that the enemy was incapable of loving, right? Or chose not to love, unwilling unwilling or, un- or incapable. Um, and this is what happens when, I think this is, this is a, one of the commentaries of the play. This is what happens when people become uh, stuck within, with the inability to love. It doesn't just poison themselves. It, it, poisons the whole world. And the question of this play, one of the questions of this play is, is individual love enough to conquer a societal hatred, right? And with Romeo, we see he's so transformed by his love for Juliet that he now has the capacity to love his enemy. He just wants to be at peace with everybody. This is more than just adolescent buoyancy. This is a real change in him. And he's trying as best he can to extend, um, that harmony beyond him and is indeed shut down. Like it's refused. Sarah Jane. Well, yes, that's, that's exactly right. It's, um, it's a, it's a reflection of divine love. I think that's what the relationship Mm -hmm. is supposed to point us towards. And there's all that celestial and theological imagery in, in their first meeting and the second meeting. And, um, um, we we talked a lot of, in Act Two about how um, the play can easily kind of be misconstrued as um, you know two young people who are just kind of inflamed with the first glimpses of romantic love, and there's nothing sort of ennobling about the affection that they have for each other. And I, this seems to me the opening exchange between Romeo. And Tybalt is an example that that Juliet is ennobling Romeo. She's not just, you know, uh, it's not just a story of romantic solipsism. They're just kind of in this, you know, binary two-star universe. They are expanding out beyond their relationship. They care about more than just themselves and each other. What a shame then that Tybalt and Romeo... (laughs) cross swords literally and that Romeo um inflamed at the death of his best friend 
attacks Tybalt. It has to happen. We know it has to happen, but it's just so heartbreaking when it does happen. It is heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because Romeo is is ennobled here. And it's also heartbreaking because we as the audience, we can see this could have been a comedy, right? That's that's what one of the reasons why Romeo and Juliet is so brilliant because it's a tragedy that was almost a comedy. It just has these razors, these margins, razor-like margins throughout the whole play. If this had gone this way, then we would have, then it would have ended with a wedding. But instead it went this way and ended in a tragedy. And this is one of those moments. Um, I think Mercutio is really, really uh, important and curious. I'm always so curious about him in this scene because his response to Tybalt, to me, I'm curious how you guys read his response to Tybalt. To me, it seems like he's angry at Romeo for failing to engage with Tybalt. And so he pushes this conflict almost as a test of loyalty to his friends because he's Mercutio always just has, I mean, he has such a tragic arc here in this play. Um, and we talked about that last week, but he pushes, it's Benvolio. I think, you know, Shakespeare in his genius, he gives Romeo two friends. One as evidence of like this, you know, rat pack of guys that are just like going around town and being cool together. Um, and that's important for Romeo's persona that we know he's he he's not just like mooning around for love. He has like guy friends and he knows how to fight and he's, he's actually a cool guy. Um, but it's also important because the contrast between Benvolio, who is trying to harmonize and make peace in this scene and Mercutio who keeps pushing and pushing and pushing and is the one who leads them into violence in this scene. Tybalt was going to let it go until Mercutio came and pushed it. So um, I think that that is a, particularly, again, there's just so much pathos in the scene and the way Shakespeare sets it up. It's not like just act three opens and Romeo and Tybalt are fighting. He gives us these little glimpses in the setup of this fight that add this pathos to this scene. Yes, it is. It is full of pathos. I agree. Um, I, I also think one of the things that makes it so tense is that it's been brewing since act two. When Tybalt spotted Romeo at the Capulet feast, he wanted blood. And he's come out in the day looking for Romeo, trying to find him in the streets. And um, yes, it's really interesting, isn't it, that Shakespeare gives Romeo these two friends. One, Mercutio, who is mercurial, unpredictable, wild, and Benvolio the good. And, uh, you know, Romeo then again is trapped between his desire and his duty. And his duty here is to avenge his mm -hmm. friend. And much as he already extended love to Tybalt, he, he must honour the love he has for his best friend and he must complete the revenge cycle. And in fact, all the characters recognise this at the end of the scene. The prince realises there is justice mm -hmm. here, that this is what ought to have happened. And so um, in that sense, Romeo is acquitted and he's not killed by the prince, he's exiled. Of course, it, it's complicated by the fact that the prince's kinsman is Mercutio and seems to be more inclined towards the Montagues in the play, I think. So. I agree with yeah. that. I agree with that. And the Capulets seem, the Capulets seem a little worse. Like their character seems a little <laughs> bit more degenerate than the Montagues in the play. Although Lady Montague here in this scene is particularly, you know, she's angry and lashes out. So. I struggle a bit with the idea that this is, um, 
a tragedy that that at any point could have been a comedy. I think that mm. I, I just don't think that's the case because there's there's so much foreboding, any morbid images from the beginning, the heaviness of Romeo's heart, the uh, proclivity of Romeo and Juliet to speak about death in relation to their love from the outset, it, and that, and that it's written in the stars. I don't see that. Um, you know, that kind of turning on a pin's head uh, potential in the play. I think it, that Shakespeare has set it up so that it is impossible for this to be a comedy from the outset. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that there's some competing forces within the play. Everything that you're saying is, of course, true. If you're paying attention, you're, that's, it's, it's been set up from the beginning. As soon as there's an, you know, a blood feud that uh, is irreconcilable, right? And we're even told in the prologue, it's this is what's going to happen. They're going to die. And in their death, they're going to resolve their family's trauma. So I agree with you in that. I, I wonder, Heidi, if um, I, I'm thinking about from the audience's point of view, first time you're seeing this, this play, there's so many of those references to death, even in the preface that I think would just slide on by you and would not might not register. And so as an, ex, as a theater experience, an audience might feel like it could turn either way, but upon revisiting the play and you see all of these references to the inevitability of death and that fate's hand is already moving against Romeo and Juliet, then you might think, Oh, we, they were doomed from the start. There's no way that this could be a comedy, you know, but I think from an audience's perspective, I think you could make the case, the case that you're making that like, no, this could turn either way until maybe until this moment, you know, until. Right. Well, until act three. Yeah. There's so much buildup of their love in the first two acts, right? This, that's the, the their love is like the character that's unfolding and coming to life. Mm. Right. And then in act three, there's what's with Tybalt's death, the, the tides have turned and the, the denouement is, is set, right? Um, however, I do still think so much hinges on fortune in this play that there has to be some kind of question mark in order to create suspense in the play. And I think that's one of Friar Lawrence's roles within the play. Um, he has many, he's a really important character, but one of them is to be that eternal optimist. That's like, we're going to make this love work out. Your love is indeed going to harmonize this conflict. Right. And instead it is love in death that harmonizes the conflict, but he really believes it's going to be love in life. And so he's fighting so much for it. You kind of believe it. Right. Well, maybe this drug will work. Maybe, maybe if Romeo just starts acting like a man, right? Maybe if Juliet stands up to her parents, maybe if, you know, maybe if he can get Tybalt to walk away from the fight. Like there's all of these, Shakespeare gives us all of these question marks. That's like, if this, and in that case, we do indeed know that they are going to die. That's told us in the prologue before the curtain even comes up. So we know the outcome, but Shakespeare in his brilliance, put so many like hopeful signs within the play that it is like this, well, maybe it'll work out. Maybe this time, mm -hmm. maybe this time, mm -hmm. right? It's like a B, <laughs> like, yeah, have you seen the B movie, you guys? Um, no. It's such a bad movie. It's a terrible movie. Don't watch it. But there's this part when when this B is trying to get in through a window and he doesn't know that it's glass and he keeps running into it. And he's like, maybe this time, maybe this time, maybe this time. And I feel that maybe this time feeling every single time I read this play. 
Charlie so, Brown trying yeah. to kick the football from Lucy. Exactly. This time it's going to be different. This time. Well, and it's it's in this it's in this act that we get Romeo's famous line, right? I am fortune's fool, he right. says after he kills Tybalt. And I think he is fortune's fool. And so I you know, I know that that's a big debatable issue that scholars have debated over the centuries. And I land on the he is fortune fool side. So that is, you know, I do think that fortune and fate is um, is such a big part of the play. So before we turn to scene two, um, Sarah Jane, I'm going to ask you about Edmund Spencer. We talked about him briefly during our last episode and there's kind of an allusion to one of his poems um, in scene two. But before we talk about that author, Spencer, I'm going to talk about Christopher Marlowe. Have you guys heard that some scholars think that Shakespeare modeled Mercutio after Christopher Marlowe? Have you ever heard this before? My friend Renee, who loved um, the podcast on act two, told me that a few scholars are like, yeah, Christopher Marlowe really resembles Mercutio. He's so a little bit about Christopher Marlowe. He was probably the closest thing to a rival that Shakespeare had in his day. Um, so Marlowe is a poet and a, like this tremendously flamboyant, um, outgoing personality. He just kind of like seems to really sound um like mercutio and apparently is known for kind of his his body wit he dies under various you know under mysterious circumstances he was a bar brawler um and and when renee told me that i was like oh i've never thought about that and so i read some of the, a little bit of the writings about that but have you guys heard that marlo and mercutio yeah, you've I've heard, definitely that, Sarah heard that i can't remember you, where you, i have heard that definitely yeah. And um, yeah. I mean, Marlowe invented, invented, he kind of made great the mighty line with the play Tamburlaine. He kind of made blank mm. verse, which Shakespeare uses. And obviously there are lots of conspiracy theories surrounding Marlowe. Um, a lot of critical thought thinks that maybe he was a Roman Catholic and so was uh, treading mm. very dangerous territory by working in the theatre. I mean, if you read Dr. Faustus, there are lots of interesting theological questions in that play. And I've definitely heard that the bar brawl potentially was actually more like an assassination dressed up as a bar brawl. He was killed huh, huh. for being an, a really? sort of secret enemy of the state. But And others say that he was a spy. So, I mean, he was fascinating. <laughs> yeah, he's a man of intrigue for sure. For like sure. Like Mercutio, I suppose. You'd have to okay, you'd um, have to have a wit like that to survive as long as he did, I imagine. Right. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, scene two, we turn back to Juliet and she has this beautiful monologue. And Sarah Jane, I want to ask you about it. It kind of resembles in a way a poem by Edmund Spencer. And um, I actually, we've asked Heidi's daughter, Lucy, to give us a little audio of the poem um, so let's hear that now and then we'll come back and I'd like to hear a little bit more about Edmund Spencer, Sarah Jane, if you don't mind. Ah, when will this long weary day have end and lend me leave to come unto my love 
How slowly do the hours their numbers spend? How slowly does sad time his feathers move? Has thee, O fairest planet, to thy home within the western foam? Thy tired steeds long since have need of rest. Long though it be, at last I see it gloom, and the bright evening star with golden crest appear out of the east. Fair child of beauty, glorious lamp of love, that all the hosts of heaven in ranks doth lead and guidest lovers through the night's dread. How cheerfully thou lookest from above, and seems to laugh between thy twinkling lights, as joy in the sight of these glad many which for joy do sing, that all the woods them answer and their echo ring. Now cease ye damsels your delights for past, enough it is, and that all the day was yours. Now day is done, and night is nighing fast. Now bring the bride unto the bridal bower. Now night is come, now soon her disarray, and in her bed her lay, lay her in lilies and in violets, in silken curtains over her display, in odored sheets and heiress coverlets. Behold how goodly my fair love doth fly, in proud humility, like unto Maya, when as Jove her took, in temp lying on the flowery grass, twixt sleep and wake, after she weary was, with bathing in the Acidalian brook. Now it is night, ye damsels may be gone, and leave thy love alone, and leave likewise your former lay to sing. The woods no more shall answer, nor your echo ring. That was Lucy White reading Edmund Spencer's Epithalamian, a poem he wrote to his wife for their wedding day. And it kind of resembles, doesn't it, Sarah Jane, some of the lines from Juliet's monologue in Act 3, Scene 2. That's right. There's so many fascinating parallels here. Spencer's poem takes us um, right the way through the wedding day, through the wedding morning, up to the altar, and then after that to the wedding bed. And it's it, in a way, it parallels what we've seen with um, Romeo and Juliet's relationship so far. And so it's interesting, there's this turn in Spencer's poem when night comes and the imagery changes from um, brightness and... Um, you know, the, the sun in the east and candles and torches burning bright, all the imagery we've seen already with Juliet. And suddenly it becomes dark. Now welcome night, thou night so long expected. And there's a kind of fear and um, something eerie and a little bit sinister about the night that surrounds these two lovers in their first night together um, on their wedding day. And it just reminds me so much of Juliet at the beginning of Act 3, Scene 2, as she alone, as a 14-year-old girl thinking mm. about her first night with her husband. And I'll just read a bit of this amazing speech that maybe is one of the greatest speeches that a female character has in Shakespeare, possibly. I'm not an actor, though, so I doubt I'll do this the justice it deserves. But Something tells me you're going to do really well. She's alone. Gallop apace, you fiery-footed steeds, towards Phoebus' lodging. Such a wagoner as Phaethon would whip you to the west and bring in cloudy night immediately. Spread thy close curtain, love-performing night, that runaways' eyes may wink, and Romeo leap to these arms, untalked of and unseen. Lovers can see to do their amorous rites and by their own beauties, or, if love be blind it best agrees with night. Come, civil knight, thou sober-suited matron all in black, and learn me how to lose a winning match, played for a pair of stainless maidenhoods. And it goes on, and she 
it, this is a young girl who's excited and terrified at something that she she just doesn't know what to expect. And I think what's so fascinating is she realizes as well, it's not only her maidenhood that will be lost tonight, but also Romeo's. And she sees them both as these sort of innocent children in front of a sober suited matron that night is going to teach them how to behave in the wedding bed. It's a really profound speech. Tell us a little bit about Edmund Spencer. And let me preface it by saying, um, all of our listeners are acquainted with the Renaissance. And I think most people, when they think Renaissance, they think Italian paintings. You know, this is kind of where the Renaissance really gets its start with um, these, you know, like this cachet of great painters that live in Italy. Michelangelo, Raphael, Da Vinci. Something different, slightly different is happening in England during the time of the Renaissance. The real kind of flowering of the Renaissance happens in music. So I'm thinking of Raymond Tallis as an example of a great Renaissance composer, and also in poetry, prose, and theater. So Marlowe, Shakespeare, and Edmund Spencer. Sarah Jane, can you just give us a little bit about Edmund Spencer? What do we know about him? I don't know a lot about his life, but I know that he was probably not an aristocrat, very well educated in the court of Elizabeth, and he probably the greatest contributor to the the mythology surrounding Queen, good Queen Bess, Queen Elizabeth I. Mm. And his poem, The Fairy Queen, is sort of is the height of the golden age that she presided over. So it's it's huge. It's written all in Spenserian sonnets. It's six books long. And oh dear. It's it's unique as a work of poetry in that it's Spencer has invented a mythology and he also brings together classical mythology and also biblical imagery as well, as well as there being historical reality to it. So it's in this entire world he's created around Elizabeth I. And I just think that Shakespeare would have read it. I don't have any evidence for that at all, but I'm sure that there is some out there somewhere. Um, and I, right, right, there's right, right. so much, I think, that echoes Spencer in some of the imagery in, in this play. Beautiful. Act three, scene three, we return to one of our mysterious characters, Friar Lawrence. And we kind of reintroduce this theme that we saw in the first couple of acts, uh, this question of ontology. So just to kind of remind our readers, ontology is one of those big words that just means the study of being. Epistemology would be the study of knowledge, like how do we know what we know? Ontology is the study of being, like what is a thing? Um, is a rock just a collection of atoms or does it signify something in the universe? Is that part of a, a, a whole um, ecology? So ontologists, I don't know that there are any professional ontologist out there today. If there are, please. What a cool job. That what a great be. job. And like, what's the pay point on being a professional ontologist? I'm sure that, you'd make millions. I think I'm you sure. would. I think you would yeah. make millions. I think a midwife probably comes quite close. I bet you're right. That's a great I comment. I love that. Love That's that. probably the closest thing in the modern age to an ontologist. Ontology has kind of fallen a little bit out of favor in contemporary philosophy. Not completely, but um, a midwife would probably have something to say about ontology. Okay. 
So in act two, we have the kind of ontology of Romeo and Juliet. Are they their names? Are they independent? And now we have this new question of on or the, the question of ontology now kind of faces Friar Lawrence after he discovers that Romeo has killed Tybalt. So here's Friar Lawrence questioning Romeo. Hast thou slain Tybalt? Wilt thou slay thyself? And stay thy lady too that lives in thee by doing damned hate upon thyself? Why railest thou on thy birth? the heaven and earth, since birth and heaven and earth, all three do meet in thee at once, which thou at once wouldst lose. Fie, fie, thou shamest thy shape, thy love, thy wit, which like a usurer aboundest in all and usest none in that true use indeed, which should bedeck thy shape, thy love, thy wit, thy noble shape is but a form of wax digressing from the valor of a man. That's about as good a tell-off as you can have. Like it just mm. sounds so good, and it's like it's it got to cut Romeo to the bone. What 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 is Heidi? I want to ask you. What's Friar Lawrence asking Romeo here? What's the question that he's putting to Romeo? Yeah. So. Romeo's falling apart. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> killed, For sure. He killed Tybalt. Uh, and he doesn't know what Juliet's response is at this point. Uh, and he knows that he's done something irrevocable that he cannot take back and that has changed everything. Uh, and so he goes to his confessor. He goes to his priest, goes to Friar Lawrence and tells him everything. And Friar Lawrence is trying to give him at the beginning of this scene of the speech you just read, brilliant speech at the beginning of the scene, a little earlier, uh, Friar Lawrence is trying to give him a pep talk. He's like, all right, get up time to get up. Be patient. Mm. He tells him for the world is broad and wide. He's he says, you're not condemned to death. You're condemned. You're banished. You're exiled, but you will figure it out. And Romeo will have none of it. He continues to just, I mean, he's like disintegrating here. And I use that word intentionally because that particular experience that Romeo is having of falling apart brings up the question then of, in order to put you back together, who are you? Right. And, um, and I, I think structurally it's important here in order to bring up this question of Romeo, because it's Romeo's identity that continues to be asked about, right? Not even Juliet, which mm. is interesting because she's the woman, right? Um, but it's it's Juliet that says to Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Deny thy father and, uh, and refuse thy name, right? And Romeo's like, okay, who do you want I'm me to be to then, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, and um, Juliet knows exactly who she wants to be. She wants to be Romeo's wife. And, and Romeo never really seems entirely sure. Is he comfortable in his own skin? Is he a Montague? Is he, a, uh, is he the lover of Juliet? And, and I think especially in this context, uh, I would say it's still ontologically true, but uh, the, many would disagree with me here. But definitely at the time, in order for a woman to unite herself with a man, she is giving up part of her identity in order to take mm. on his, mm. right? And so... Romeo's identity here becomes extremely important 
to the play. And because it's that's the identity that Juliet is taking on. And then we have this reversal in that it's Romeo who falls apart and Juliet who becomes stronger after after Tybalt's death. Uh, And that is confusing, right? That creates another level of kind of confusion and disorientation within the play. So what what Father Lawrence is doing here in the speech that you just read is he has tried to give him pep talk. He's tried to encourage him. He's tried to make him count his blessings and Romeo will have none of it. Right. And, uh, and even, and the nurse comes and is like, Juliet still loves you. Come and meet your, come and be with your wife. And Romeo still won't even get up off the ground. And then Father Lawrence essentially loses his temper and gives him this talk and tells him you are something right. Because you have slain Tybalt does not take away your identity. You are something. And the thing that you are, or the things that you are, birth and heaven and earth, all three do meet in thee at once. Mm. Birth, he's a Montague. Mm. He was born to be something. He is a Montague. He cannot actually deny his father and refuse his name. He is a Montague. Right. He can't give that up for Juliet. Uh, he also is heaven and earth. He's a he. He belongs to the world. He's earth. He's dust. Right. He's a man, and he's also a heavenly being. Right. He is. He is made by God and under the authority then of of God. Um, and so he's a spiritual being. He is a physical being, and he's also a relational and a societal being. Mm-hmm. And this is what Friar Lawrence is trying to remind him: all three of these things in you do meet. Get up and act. Fie, fie! Thou shamest thy shape, thy love, thy wit, which like a usurer aboundest in all and usest none. In that true use, indeed, which Sarah Jane, I want to ask you about this reference to wax, which should bedeck thy shape, thy love, thy wit, thy noble shape is but a form of wax, digressing from the valor of a man. Uh, comparing him to wax is not a compliment, is it? I don't think it is, and. So that's the second of of these um, comparisons that the friar makes. I just love what Heidi just said. She's absolutely right. That the form of a man that the friar is talking about is the form of a man is an idea in God's mind. Mm. And then that idea becomes flesh because it's incarnate, because when God speaks, things happen. And that's, um, that's absolutely, I think, what, the Renaissance mind believed in terms of what a form meant. Um, so, Heidi, have you ever thought about a, a, a calling in ontology? Just kind of like a profession? I, I would love to be an ontologist. Yeah? I'm going to figure out, see if there's any job openings yeah. for ontologists. Maybe Craigslist. I would love to see a Craigslist ask for an ontologist. See. Yes. But I am like so loving what Sarah Jane is saying. So... I, you can be my, my mentor in my new calling as an ontologist. She's the headhunter so, that finds you the job. Yeah, I've got this great me, ontologist. You've got me to meet her. Her name's Heidi, yes. Heidi White. You got to meet her. <laughs> so, but I interrupted continue. you. Yeah, I interrupted yes. you, Sarah Jane. <laughs> well, so first of all, the, the friar compares Romeo then to a usurer. Obviously, usury is illegal and sinful. He's got, he's got all this wealth and this richness that he's been given as a gift and he's just storing it up and wasting it. He's not using it. He's not putting it to its proper use. And then um, this word shape keeps getting repeated by the friar. Thy shape, thy love, thy wit. We, we then hear the, the friar say, 
Thy noble shape is but a form of wax, digressing, melting, deviating from the valour of a man. So it seems that Romeo is not being steadfast. Mm. He's not holding his shape and form as a man, but he is um, melting and changing into something else that he shouldn't be. And actually earlier in the speech, the friar calls him both a beast and a woman, that he's being womanly and bestial. And, and a few moments before, Romeo was envious of the flies on the dung heaps of um, Verona because they could be- They have it so good. So he's having an identity crisis here, definitely. The idea of wax, I think, is a really interesting one. Wax is impressionable. It is, but it's, it's also capable of being molded into something beautiful. The, the nurse compares Paris to a man of wax and presents this as a, something esteemed and desirable, as if he's sort of cut out of wax, like a beautiful waxwork in a way. He's too good to be a man. He's almost mm. too good to be true. Um, but the friar gets it right and, and says, if you're like wax, then there's nothing to you. You, don't, you can't hold your shape because as soon as, you get, as soon as you come near to the heat, you melt, you disappear. And the pressure, and the, yeah. Yeah, under pressure, you give way. And the next metaphor that he uses, I think, is one of the best in the play. He says, um, Thy wit, that ornament to shape and love, misshapen in the conduct of them both, like powder in the skillless soldier's flask, is set afire by thine own ignorance, and thou dismembered with thine own defence. So I think I've said this before. He compares Romeo to a soldier who's blown himself up because he's so clumsy and self-obsessed and stupid that he's actually blown himself to smithereens and he's this is really a warning to Romeo look at you're playing with fire and you're going to obliterate yourself if you don't get it together and then um after that we have the famous there art thou happy speech where he gives Romeo all these different reasons as to why he should steal himself and be a man and I think there's something here about you know stoicism and ideas of actually not melting under the pressure of emotional turmoil and actually mm. standing up and maintaining some kind of character, which is so against the current of our times in the 21st century in, in, in kind of popular secular culture. I think the idea is now that, you know, in the wake of the rom- romantic revolution that we, we give way to our emotions and indulge in them. But the friar is saying, no, be stoical, look at what you've got to be grateful for and persevere. And, um, it's what Romeo needs to hear. Man, it is. it's what he needs to hear. Yes, although we've enjoyed we've enjoyed reveling in his emotions with him up until now. Right, right. But this but is part of his maturity. This is part of like what his affection for Juliet is calling him to. That's right. And also this the friar is saying, look, love is it's not just an emotion that runs like a current and then changes with a tide. It's that this is if you're in love with Juliet, then be a man and stand, stand and be steadfast. Yeah, very good. You guys, let's pause for a second. I want to say something about our hosts. So the Circe Institute is the host of this podcast. And by this point, the podcast has gotten so big that a lot of you don't even really know who Circe is. In short, it's an organization built to inspire and inform classical educators. That's the that's the purpose of the organization. 
But maybe instead of me telling you about them, let's drop in on one of their apprenticeship classes uh, where they're going to be discussing a play. Let's see if you can guess which Shakespeare play they're discussing. Uh, Caterissa. I was kind of going to go off a little bit on what Alex said, but I think one of the differences is that it seems like Polonius has his mind made up already about people. This is life in the Circe apprenticeship program. Master teachers mentoring other educators. Now, most of the mentoring happens in small group discussions like this one. Whereas Ham was putting on the play because he actually wants to know. He if you're says, wanting inspiring conversation with like-minded friends, pushing toward truth, wisdom, and virtue. Yeah, yeah. when have I said it was thus and it was not, right? Exactly. Learn more at Circe, that's C-I-R-C-E, institute.org slash apprenticeship. Okay, back to our show. But he's already made up his mind. Uh, you guys, before we end the show, I have a little pop quiz for the both of you. And it's especially going to be especially pertinent for Heidi, but I think Sarah Jane, you're going to enjoy it too. So that's what we have to, that's what we have to kind of like. I'm so nervous right now. No, it's, you're going to love it. You're going to love it so much. I, I, I want to tell like you right now. I everyone's going to be seeing like my golf swing or something and I'm going to mess it up. <laughs> In a way, in a way that might not be completely wrong. (laughs) It might not be completely wrong. It might be accurate. I can't wait. I'm all in. Um, Heidi, Romeo and Juliet respond very differently to the killing of Tybalt, don't they? Walk us through like, how is their response? We've, We've been talking about it a little bit, but like, how is their response to Tybalt's death different? It's so different. And I find Shakespeare's choices here to be like just dazzling. He's He takes so many risks in his plays and it would have been so easy to, uh, to, to write this differently. And I just applaud him centuries after the fact for, for what he did here. Romeo, as we've already said, he falls apart. He's, he, he he's he's wax right he's a man of wax and so under the heat under the pressure he loses his shape and in his defense uh what he's going through and being banished is not nothing like friar lawrence is trying to give him a pep talk about it but it's a big deal because what he had five minutes ago so to speak right like earlier that day he woke up and had a wife and a family and the potential for his new love to reconcile a centuries-old feud. That's what he's been told by Father Lawrence. Even though that's not his intention, he's thinking only of himself. That's at least there in his mind. And and then he goes out on a walk and ends up killing his <laughs> wife's cousin and re-sparking this huge feud and gets banished. And so he's lost his love he's lost his desire and his duty with one sword stroke, so to speak. And it's his fault. He did it. Um, And he knows that. So he's lost everything that matters to him. It's not nothing. So, you know, there's a little bit that's like, yeah, be a man. And then there's another part that's like, okay, give the guy 10 minutes to kind of adjust. You know what I mean? Like, so, (laughs) um, but in true adolescent fashion, he's talking about, you know, killing himself. And um, so, Friar Lawrence, he tells him what he needs to hear. He does. And Romeo mm-hmm. is collapsing. 
Mm-hmm. Juliet, on the other hand, in scene five, which Tim, you particularly mentioned off the air that you wanted to talk about it because oh, so many things happen. So many things happen in act three as always happens in a Shakespeare play. Act three is a turning point, right? And and the Tybalt scene gets a lot of play. And this final scene, scene five, is not as famous as it should be. It is not as well-known and beloved as it ought to be, to your Thank point. Thank you. Because Amen. what we see in scene five is a completely different reaction from Juliet. And that is, she is, excuse me for what I'm about to say, she is like a badass in this scene. <laughs> So in in scene four, her parents decide they're going to marry her off. Her father just autocratically decides, I'm going to marry her off to Paris and and like on Thursday. And hey, wife, go tell Juliet. And he says he's doing it to comfort her because she's continuing to weep over Tybalt because that's what he thinks is happening. He thinks she's grieving over Tybalt. Um, Obviously, there's more to it. She is grieving over Tybalt, but there's a whole other thing that's happened in her life that he knows nothing about. And she refuses just categorically. I'll not do it. And she is respectful and she owns, she owns the fact that she's going to be disappointing to her family, but she just says like, I'll not do it. I would rather die. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She asserts herself. Romeo collapses. Romeo loses his identity. Juliet steps into hers. She owns it. She takes authority over her own life. She is very like Jane Eyre here. I'm an independent. I'm not, I am no caged bird. I am a human being with an independent will is essentially what she says in this scene. Um, that's a quote from Jane Eyre, but I'm putting it, it's the same, you know, paraphrase um, what, <laughs> what Juliet does here. And, and in return, instead of kindness and sympathy and tenderness from her family, they disown her. And so at the oh, end man. of act three, what we have is Romeo and Juliet having responded completely differently, but yet they are now in exactly the same position. Exactly the same spot. Right. Romeo has been banished. And so he is cut off from his love and from his family. And Juliet at the end of act three has been disowned by her parents for refusing to marry Paris. And so now she is without her love and without her family. And so they're in the same position, but they got there by very different routes, by very different character traits and responses to trauma. I watched the Franco Zeffirelli film and um, I think Sarah Jane, I know of your respect for that film and I have respect for that film, but I think that their version of act three, scene five is not, I don't like it because I think that Heidi is right. I think that like Juliet really shines in this scene and Zeffirelli in the Zeffirelli film, Juliet is wailing and throwing herself across the bed. And the just in like, but you're like, wait, but what do her lines say? Her lines are full of wit and like an insight. And there's this dramatic irony that when she responds to her mother saying, Hey, we're gonna marry you to Paris and we're gonna get revenge on Romeo, Juliet is so witty in her responses to her mother. I'm just going to read some of them because I was just so impressed. So impressed. Um, So, um, Juliet, and yet no man like he, Romeo, doth grieve my heart, mother. That is because the traitor murderer lives, Juliet. I, madam, from the reach of these hands would none but I venge my cousin's death, mother. 
we will have vengeance for it. Fear thou not, then weep no more. I hope thou will be satisfied. Juliet, indeed, I never shall be satisfied with Romeo till I behold him. Dead is my poor heart for a kinsman vex. That's just so clever. Um, I just, I lost my spot. Indeed, I never shall be satisfied with Romeo till I behold him. Dead is my poor heart for a kinsman vexed. Oh, how my heart abhors to hear him named and cannot come to him to wreak the love I bore my cousin upon his body that slaughtered him. It's so rich. It's so good. She's saying, I mean, she's not telling her mother. Yeah. The bro that killed Tybalt, our cousin that you think I'm crying over is actually my husband. And actually he was here 10 minutes ago. He's stuck into the house. We're married. And we're like, you know, we spent the night together. She hides all of this from the mother and somehow conveys that to her mother that Romeo is her enemy when the opposite is true. It's so good. And I was a little frustrated with the Zeffirelli film that they just kind of like have like rolling around on the sheets and like crying her eyes out. I mean, I get it's a tremendously emotional moment, but I think Juliet kind of stands up to it in a way like that Romeo doesn't stand up to it. Sarah Jane, I'm not going to make you defend Zeffirelli. No, I, I just to, agree with you. I think one of the things that works well in the film is the youth of Juliet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. and that, and you're right, in Act 3, Scene 5, she is wise beyond her years. It's very hard for her yeah. to, to imagine a 14-year-old saying this. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is. Juliet's father, I'm, this is a theme in, in Shakespeare, like the father disowning the daughter from disobedience. I just, it's so heartbreaking Hang thee, young baggage, disobedient wretch. I tell thee what, get thee to church o' Tuesday or never look after me in the face. Like, come on, man. It reminds me of Lear. There's so many of these like fathers that, you know, in these, like the, the daughter won't like fulfill what he wants and he flies into a rage, cast them out, never look me again in the face if you're not going to marry Paris. It's just so heartbreaking. And thus we enter act five, excuse me, act four, but not before we do our secret pop quiz. Okay. Are you guys ready for the secret pop quiz? No. no. <laughs> yes. Okay. Here are the rules. I'm going to give you a line and you need to tell me whether or not the line is from William Shakespeare or from Taylor Swift. I can't wait. I okay. love this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so Sarah Jane, I, I mean, Taylor Swift is I'm a Americana. Taylor Swift fan and yeah. Tim never ceases to mock me for this. <laughs> no, and not, I am a defender. Yeah. It's not mocking. It's sort of like... Um, lighthearted teasing. Lighthearted teasing and... Yeah like somewhat condescending appreciation. Yes. It's only condescending. I sh it shouldn't be condescending. Like Taylor Swift is terrific. She's great, but she's just so, she's branded as being so pop. Mm -hmm. And so True. the show, you know, when on close reads and on the plays, the thing, we delight ourselves in like taking on kind of, you know, we talk about ontology and epistemology and, <laughs> but secretly, you know, I'm listening to Taylor Swift. I watch, yes, I watch NBA basketball in the evenings and Heidi listens to Taylor Swift. Sports and Taylor ball. Swift is tremendously talented. First line. 
if you get bonus points if you can tell me either the play or the song that the line is from. Friendship makes us fresh. Shakespeare or Taylor Swift? Taylor Swift. I think that's maybe half a line. I'm going to say Shakespeare. It's iambic. I can't tell you which play. I don't, I actually don't recognize that line. So I'm just guessing. It's from Henry the Fourth, Part One. No way. Yes. Yes. Okay. Next one. Love is a devil. That's, That's Taylor, Taylor Swift. Swift. Shakespeare. No. From Love's Labor Lost. <laughs> I love this. this. Is so fun. Yeah, Next line. Friendship makes us fresh. Huh. You and I are past our dancing days. You and I are past our dancing days. I think it's, I think it's Shakespeare, iambic, right? And I think it is Lord Capulet. Heidi? Oh man. I I know this one. So this is this is Taylor Swift and it's from Hold on. I love this. No. It's from <laughs> it's from Romeo and Juliet. It is. Yeah. Yeah. It's it is from Romeo and Juliet. It's, and Sarah yeah. Jane, you're right. It's, it's, it's Lord Capulet. Speech, isn't it? That was impressive. When he makes the speech. Pardon me? It's a speech at the party. Right. Just before just before the party, yeah. right? Just before the party in I Act One. I think so. Yeah. I think so too. <laughs> it is from a song though. But yeah, it's a Romeo and Juliet. If yeah. Taylor right. Swift is past her dancing days, that's the end of Yeah, it's know, we're right? all done for. <laughs> Next line, right there where we stood was holy ground. That's not Shakespeare. No, that can't be. That's Taylor Swift. You get a song for me? <sighs> no, but I don't, I don't. It's just, it's, it's from a song called Holy Ground, right? Have you heard? That's impressive, Heidi. It's yeah, Taylor it's Swift an early from the song, song Holy Ground. Though. Yeah. Have you heard of the Detty Sisters? No. Yes. They're these three little girls that sing with guitars. And one of their songs is, take your shoes off, Moses, you're on holy ground. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it made me think of that. We keep yeah. singing that to Elizabeth all we the time. We should do a whole episode, Sarah Jane, when you talk in an American accent I know, and I talk I know. in a British accent. <laughs> <laughs> Next be one, a lot of fun. <laughs> Two more lines. When I was at home, I was in a better place. When I was at home, I was in a better place. Um, that is Shakespeare. That's from As You Like It. Um, I was going to say it's Taylor Swift, but I'm, I'm pretty sure Heidi's right there. Heidi's right. Not just it's, that it was Shakespeare, but I it's from As You watched, Like It. I, well, I watched, a, I watched this a couple of weeks ago. Oh, did you really? Yeah. Like, so I, I watched line. a version of it on YouTube with my kids. So that's why I recognized it. Last line. Romeo, take me somewhere we can be alone. Oh, that's Taylor Swift. Juliet doesn't say that. Yep. yep. It's from Taylor Swift's song, Love Story. 
Yeah. Very well done. You guys scored very, very no, well. No, we did. Yes, I you did. You scored very, very, <laughs> you scored a lot better than I would have scored for sure. Absolutely for sure. You guys, that is act three. Act four, we now have to deal with the die that has been cast and all of the fallout from not just Tybalt's death, but Romeo's banishment and from Juliet's refusal to accept Paris as her husband. And now she is being cast out from her family. So we have that to um, look forward to in act four. We have that. That's what's going to happen in act four, the the fallout from those events. Uh, I want to thank you guys both for joining us. We, there's already chatter on the Facebook page on the close reads, Facebook page about these Romeo and Juliet podcasts. Please join us there if you have not already. Um, we would love to hear from you. See you next time on The Plays the Thing. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.